Henry Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had the Stephen James endorsement already attached. In our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil. And uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there. They're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of Harper Cons. And the 2015 Carol Award for debut novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. My name is Zachary Bartles, and I am an author. It's been a year since I started this podcast, and in that time, quite a bit has happened on the literary front. And yet, somehow, I think I'm a little less confident proclaiming I am an author than I was on that first podcast episode. Not sure why. A few reasons, probably. First of all, we've gotten further, like, chronologically, from the release of my books with a major publisher. I mean, how long did Right Said Fred keep identifying with their major label period after the release of I'm Too Sexy? What, what's that? They're, they're still trading on that one? Oh, that somehow makes my thing so much worse. I don't know why. But I mean, it's 2018. Aside, how can it be 2018? I literally can't remember more than five things that happened in 2017. But there's no denying it was 2015 when my second-slash-last book came out with HarperCollins Publishers. That's a while, especially in book years. And in the meantime, many of my friends and colleagues who started out about the same time are now signing big contracts and building up sizable readerships. Meanwhile, I released a sequel to my debut novel, Playing Saint, last October. Honestly, I thought it was a winning idea, using this podcast, which is doing pretty well, to promote the book, as well as mentioning it on my two other podcasts. Free, new media-style publicity, if you will. The brilliance, though, as I saw it, was in the natural integration of the product placement with the actual subject of the pod. It worked for Joanna Penn, so why not me? But after a fairly strong launch, playing Saint All Souls Day kind of fizzled and flagged, then flopped. It was frustrating because thousands of people read Playing Saint, and I've heard from hundreds who loved it, but trying to somehow reach those people with news of the follow-up was a stark reminder of just how important gatekeepers and media resources continue to be, even now in the age of POD, ebooks, and indie pubs. One thing this podcast did do for me, though, was kind of exercise the demons of what if, which had been plaguing me for a couple years. What I mean is that talking so much about what happened and what didn't happen in my writing career thus far has left me bored to tears by the topic. In fact, I'd been toying with the idea of inviting my former agent on for the last ep of this season and asking her to just lay out everything I did wrong and everything that just sort of went wrong. I thought she'd probably be game, and I thought it was a bold and baller move, 
and it could have been a nice inclusio bookends kind of thing for the podcast, but I ultimately decided against it. Not because I was worried about looking bad, but just because dwelling on all that stuff any longer just seemed sad. In fact, this happened early on in the podcast. I sort of announced it somewhere around episode six, I think. But the effect actually continued on as I began talking to other people who had had similar experiences and as I saw a lot of people moving forward. I mean, what's the point in looking back when that's all over? It's done and determined, permanently lodged in the past. And here in the present, there are plenty of things to occupy my mental energy and time. Things that are still up in the air. As I told you, I requested the audio rights to Playing Saint about a month ago, hoping to record audiobooks of both the original and the sequel, and have yet to hear back from the publisher on that one. I've got a niche nonfiction book proposal out to a couple of niche publishers, likely languishing in slush piles now, and the publishing-slash-distribution deal that I sort of had on the hook for the reboot of 42 Months Dry is still sort of in limbo. But most importantly... The paperback of Clinch is now available, and it remains to be seen if it will fare any better than Playing Saint All Souls Day did. I have no idea whether people will buy a book they've already heard for free. Maybe you've got a young reader or five in your life who would like to receive a copy as a gift. Or maybe your church library is short on YA fiction. Consider grabbing a copy. Unlike other podcasts, I don't ask you to chip in money through Patreon to defray the alleged costs of recording, which I honestly have no idea what those would even be. I'd rather offer something entertaining and hopefully inspiring that you can buy and read and enjoy. That's a great way to support the podcast. Oh yeah, not just buy and read and enjoy, but also review. Another way you can help out the podcast. If you liked this first season and you haven't yet, consider leaving an iTunes review. And if you've liked the novel Clinch, please consider leaving an Amazon review. I'll link to the Amazon page in the show notes, or you can find it at www.zacharybartles.com slash clinch. Oh, and indulge me in one more little product placement. At the moment, the ebook of Playing Saint is 99 cents. If you haven't read it, you really can't beat that price, and maybe it'll make you want to check out the sequel. And finally, I just want to thank you for listening over the past year and remind you to keep checking in for the next season, starting late summer. You can stay in the loop by following me on Twitter, that's at AuthorZBartles, or signing up for my newsletter on my website, or liking my page on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Bartles. But of course, before I sign off, we need to return one more time to Judith Morgan and Trenton Marsh in the little town of Clinch Rock. Clinch, a novel. Chapter 32. Trenton was closing in on the bunkhouse now, with no idea what he would do when he got there. Should he try and lure Terrell out into the night and bash him over the head with the club? Or maybe sneak into the building, all stealth-like, to assess the situation first? Before he could make up his mind, he felt a burst of adrenaline chug through his body. Someone was running toward him, stumbling a bit, barely visible in the thin moonlight between the two buildings. The man seemed to spot Trenton before coming to a stop and taking aim with a handgun.
Zoe came tearing up the stairs, sights set on Judith. She wasn't usually given to emotional outbursts, but the timing of all this made it pretty much inevitable. Her least favorite yokel, the girl who stood for everything Zoe hated in Clinch Rock, would bear the blame and feel the pain for all of her wasted work. Judith was a perfect scapegoat, and it would feel so good to break her, to kill her. One more loose end buried beneath the cook's range, never to be seen again. As Zoe cleared the stairs, though, Judith stooped down, catching her abdomen at the shoulder, then stood, using her opponent's momentum to flip her onto her back. The hard-packed earth stole the breath from Zoe. The landing hurt, but more than that, it enraged her. She stood quickly, dusting herself off. Keep calm, she thought. Judith was a simple brute, powered by angst, Mountain Dew, and whatever poor people ate. Zoe, however, would keep her head, approach this strategically. Her gun was nowhere to be seen, probably down in the pit, but no matter. She assumed a turning stance and breathed deeply, remembering her training. Slip her opponent's strikes, get in close and counterattack with the heels of her palms, the knife edge of her hand, her knees, then a throw and a pin and a final blow. Well, Zoe said, what are you waiting for? Trent's momentum was too great for him to reverse course or even to come to a stop. Instead, he reared back with the club, gripping it in both hands, preparing to knock the mysterious gunman's head off. Trent, the man with the gun called. Dad! Trent abandoned the blow and went in for the hug instead, accidentally clapping the club down against his father's back. Get down! His father shouted, shoving him to the ground. The crack of a gunshot sounded from the direction of the mess hall, and then another, much closer, as his dad returned fire. Go! He shouted, shoving Trent toward a stand of trees just outside the clearing. Trent scrambled toward it, his father right behind him. Two more shots filled the night. They took cover behind the broad, bare trunk of a white pine. Clearly, the shooter had followed their path, as evidenced by an explosion of bark nine inches from Trent's face. The chief spoke into his radio. Jesse, we got a shooter pinning us down here. If your prisoners are secure, I could use some backup. Way ahead of you, came the response, as Jesse charged out from the front of the bunkhouse, the chief's backup piece in one hand and the shotgun in the other. He fired around from the pistol, then dove for cover as Mike returned fire. Two bullets missed him by inches, shattering the reproduction kerosene lamp on the front porch. Grabbing the distraction, Trent's dad fired three more rounds up toward the shooter. Trent could see that he was still not 100%, not even close. His arms wavered as he tried to steady the gun, and the bullets buried themselves in the earth 30 feet short of their intended target, resulting in little explosions of mud like tiny landmines. It was clear to Trent. The three of them were indeed pinned down. It was bad. And of course there was the question of Zoe's whereabouts. She had a gun too. For all Trent knew, she was even now coming around behind to flank them. Adam turned his attention back to his son. He gripped him solidly around the back of the neck and said, The sheriff's less than 20 minutes out. Eight deputies with him. We just need to stay alive until then. You hear me? We stay alive. He looked deep into his son's eyes and said, Promise me you'll keep low, out in the darkness, until it's all over. He didn't wait for a response before continuing, I'll draw his fire away from you. I love you, son. Before Trenton could object, his dad stumbled out from behind the tree toward the sound of the gunshots. Judith flashed her hand up to Zoe's face, bringing a flinch from the slender woman. 
In that blink of an eye, she shot for Zoe's left leg, sweeping it up. Flawlessly, she went for the single-leg takedown. Two points. A blow to the ear from Zoe's palm rocked her head, and Judith dropped the leg, dazed. Another blow, this one catching the bridge of her nose, had her reeling, disoriented. She looked up at the insufferable young woman before her and had a vision of her standing behind Trent's house, bragging about all her training in some obscure form of karate or something. Apparently that hadn't been all talk. A kick to the abdomen, barely even a blur, doubled Judith over. She overrode the pain and stood again, hands up in a wrestling stance. With each blow, she felt a little slower and a little weaker. This wasn't like fighting Fisher. Sure, he broke the rules, but at least they had the same rule book to begin with. Zoe was hanging back now, waiting for Judith to come to her. She'd come all right, like a friggin' freight train. Kung Fu didn't work on freight trains. With a yell, Judith threw herself forward. Calmly, Zoe stepped back from the blitz, snagging Judith's outstretched hand and bending it hard against her forearm, creating a flash of paralyzing pain. Judith fell backwards and gasped at the sharpness of it, her arm now bending unnaturally to its absolute limit. Struggling only made it worse, so she stopped fighting and went limp. For the first time, it occurred to her that she might be outmatched, at least here and now. The reality was that she'd been exhausted before this confrontation even started. If tapping out were an option here, she'd gladly take it, no shame. But of course, it wasn't an option. The unmistakable pop-pop of two gunshots sounded from outside. You hear that? Zoe asked, grinning. That would be Mike. Sorry to tell you, but your boyfriend's dead. More gunshots, seemingly from every direction. Trent crouched at the base of the pine and willed his thoughts to come into focus, like they had at the waterfall and out in the wilderness of the camp. What would Judith do if she were here? That was the question that had brought such clarity in the woods that morning. He closed his eyes and breathed deeply. He could feel the gears turning and his pupils dilating. His eyes opened and an epiphany formed, or make that two. First, he realized he could see Mike's position, hunkered down behind a woodpile a ways up the slope, choosing each shot carefully, taking his time. Trent's night vision seemed almost superhuman in that moment, to the point of making out the permanent bro-sneer on the guy's face 30 yards away. Secondly, Trent realized he was still gripping the improvised club he'd found in the cellar. A third insight followed. He knew exactly what Judith would do in this situation. She'd silently make her way over to Mike while the punk was singularly focused on the firefight and knock his block off. That was the insane thing to do. And if ever there was a time for a little insanity, it was now. Judith swept Zoe's legs out from under her and pounced, landing a solid punch to the jaw. She pulled her fist back for another blow, but her opponent was gone, rolling to her feet. Slippery. Zoe was anything but unscathed, though. Her shoulders heaved up and down, her fists clenched in an apparent attempt to hold back her rage. Blood dribbled from her nose, and her hair had come loose, frizzing up all around her. She was no longer smiling, but the crazy in her eyes was all the scarier. Then, all at once, her rage seemed to melt away. The crazy was still there, beneath the surface, but it wasn't the out-of-control kind. More like the earn your trust and kill you in your sleep variety. 
More gunshots sounded outside. It's a lot of shooting, Judith said. Might not be my boyfriend who's in trouble. Zoe shrugged. It doesn't matter. Mike is a means to an end, and tonight's the end for all of you. Sean Taylor's words played over in Trenton's mind as he cut his way through the woods toward Mike. If either of you is signing up for YLBC, don't even think about sneaking out after curfew. Mike Van Buren will sniff you out, hunt you down. He prayed it had been an empty threat, even as he prayed that the sound of the gunshots would drown out all the noise he was making despite his efforts at stealth. Trent went deeper into the woods, the details of his plan falling into place. Behind Mike was 20 feet of open ground. Too risky. But if Trent approached him from the side, he could see a path to victory, just six feet from the cover of the tree to his target. He was still a ways back in the woods when Mike ducked down to reload. This would be the perfect moment to strike. Rush him and crush him before he could slide another magazine in. But Trent wasn't close enough. A moment later, Mike popped back up, looking down the sight of his gun for one of Clinch Rock's finest. Trent was at the edge of the woods now, still wavering. He had to attack. His dad's life depended on it. But he couldn't ignore the fact that he'd brought an old broken hunk of wood to a gunfight. The blow had been to her throat, but it was really a matter of tripping over her own feet that brought Judith back to the hard ground. She commanded her body to once again roll with the momentum, bounce back up, but her body disobeyed and absorbed the impact. The noise that escaped her mouth sounded more like a whimper than Judith cared to acknowledge. Lying there, one eye swelling shut behind the mask, blood trickling from both nostrils and one ear, she looked up at her arch-nemesis, now going in and out of focus like the image on a broken video camera. Zoe hovered overhead, waiting for the chance to knock her down yet again. Judith thought about the weapon in her left boot. It would be easy enough to pull it out, surprise her enemy, end this. But no, superheroes didn't have that option. It would be better for her to go down fighting. Maybe it didn't matter that Judith couldn't win. Her goal had been to save Trenton, and he wasn't here. Outside, the sound of gunfire persisted, meaning the fight wasn't over. And undoubtedly, more cops were on their way. It would only be a matter of time before the bad guys were outnumbered and all was set right. In the meantime, perhaps she was meant to sacrifice herself. And was anything more insane than that? The image came back into focus again, but it wasn't Zoe in frame. It was something hanging from two pegs on the wall next to the door by which she'd entered. Judith closed her eyes and gave her head a little shake, which answered with a roar of pain. But when she opened her eyes, the thing was still there. This made no sense. Was it possible that she'd missed it coming in? And of all things, why would there be an ox goad? hanging on the wall of this rugged structure just outside Clinch Rock. Then again, what did it matter? Whether a figment of her imagination or a divine appointment, Judith had nothing to lose by going for it. Reaching into the zipper compartment inside her right boot, she pulled out the last three smooth stones and hurled them at Zoe with all her might, the biggest one first, then the other two at the same time. One of them connected with Zoe's forehead, throwing her back. Powered by the last fleeting fumes in her tank, Judith rolled to her feet and stumbled forward, reaching out for the ox goat. She half expected her hands to pass right through it, an apparition. Instead, Zoe's dainty hands snatched it right out from her grasp.
The implement was tipped with six inches of steel, which came to an abrupt point. A nine-inch hooked spike protruded from the base of the steel. With some effort, Judith chuckled. She was on her feet again, and figured she may as well fight on until there was truly no fight left in her. Do you even know how to use an ox goat in combat? she asked. Not many people do. It's called a peavy, you imbecile. Judith pushed the blue hair from out of her eyes. Well, whatever you call it, bad choice, princess. Trenton was still hesitating, back in the brush, when Mike casually glanced his way and the two of them locked eyes. Now or never. Bursting out from the trees, the club high above his head, Trent rushed his nemesis, screaming bloody murder, fully expecting to feel a bullet tear through his chest. But Mike just stared back in disbelief as Trent brought the club down against his wrists with all the might and momentum at his disposal. It broke off at the handle, and the brunt of the thing bounced up against Mike's face, knocking him back two steps. Trent dropped to his knees, frantically searching for the gun. It should be right here somewhere. His eyes and fingers desperately worked over the ground beneath him, but he saw nothing. Then he saw Mike reach down to his ankle and pull out another pistol. He laughed. <laughs> nice knowing you, kid. I'm so bored with this, Zoe said. I mean, I think we both knew how it would end. She gripped the long handle of the peavy with both hands, leveling at Judith, and ran straight for her. Judith sidestepped the attack, and the spiked tip embedded itself between two pine panels. Pushing off from the wall, she slid along the shaft and slammed her shoulder into Zoe's, sending her sprawling to the ground like a hockey player checked off the boards. With a single tug... Judith freed the implement from the wall and gave it a tight spin, feeling it out. The bull roar of the weapon cutting through the air filled the little building. It was a familiar sound to Judith, and a familiar feeling. Let me show you how it's done, she said. Freeze! The command sounded almost comical to Trent, who had never been more frozen in his life. It was his dad's voice, coming from behind him, full of authority and strength. Drop the weapon or I will fire. Trent raised his head and saw Mike's right hand holding the pistol down at his side. Looking back, he saw his dad, gun clasped in two steady hands, leveled at the perpetrator. Not feeling even a little silly about it, Trent scurried back on all fours until he was safely behind his father. I won't ask again, the chief warned. Jesse rushed up beside him, shotgun at the ready. Mike looked from one cop to the other and dropped the pistol. Hands on your head, Adam ordered. Good. Now tell me, where's the girl? Zoe rose from the dirt floor, doing a poor job of masking her pain. She reassumed her fighting stance. You don't get to win, she said. You're a loser, Judith. A zero. You'll never be anything. Never have anything. Face it, you wouldn't even have Trent if I hadn't tossed him aside. She lunged at Judith, who popped her in the forehead with the handle of the peavy, snagged her around the neck with the curved metal hook, and launched her into the wall. Zoe staggered a bit, like a drunk leaving a bar. Oh, I'm going to enjoy killing you, Zoe vowed, shaking it off. The conviction had left her voice, but she seemed unable to turn off the monologue. I doubt anyone will cry when I do. I wonder how many will even notice. 
Judith swung the handle of the PV down, catching Zoe behind the knees and dumping her to the ground. Zoe rolled to her stomach and was beginning to rise when Judith brought the side of the steel head down against her shoulder blades like a sledgehammer. Zoe Frobisher, direct descendant of Heinrich Wellick, crumpled back to the ground. I hate you, she wheezed. You white trash. A string of epithets followed, interwoven liberally with four-letter words. Judith pushed the sharp tip of the peavy firmly against Zoe's back and snickered. Now who's low class? Adam rushed toward the mess hall. His head was still full of sand and pain, but the world was no longer spinning, and things were looking up. Trent was safe. Most of the perps were either dead or in handcuffs, but he would not let the ringleader slip away. This ended tonight. With a solid kick, he broke open the door of the mess hall, pistol at the ready. He intended to shout, police, but what he saw stole the breath from his lungs. A masked woman with blue hair securing Zoe's hands behind her back with a thick blue zip tie. Looking up at Adam, she said, All yours, chief. She then reached into her left boot and pulled out a compact pistol, which she set carefully on the floor. Here's her firearm, she added. Adam smiled for a moment, but went serious when Judith did not reciprocate. Whoever you are, he said, Clinch Rock owes you a great debt. The masked woman nodded once, solemnly, and faded out into the night. You know that's Judith Morgan, right? Zoe scoffed, face down to the ground. You and I haven't really met, have we? Adam said. I'm Chief Marsh, and you are under arrest for the murder of Brian Green, as well as attempted murder, conspiracy, breaking and entering, and about a dozen other things, including breaking my son's heart. You have the right to remain silent. I suggest you use it. Ten days later. I can't believe Jason would miss this, Judith said. She and Trent were sitting on his bed, waiting rather impatiently. Yeah, Trenton said. He swore he was going to be the Geraldo of the appraisal, whatever that's supposed to mean. But he's grounded for like six more weeks now. Because of the van? Uh-huh, Judith grimaced. That's kind of our fault, isn't it? I guess. But who cares? They could hear his dad coming down the stairs now, leading at least two others. Trent felt his stomach tighten up a little. Mild nerves. As it turned out, the money in the two chests was undeniably the property of the Clinch Rock Independent Church, now Clinch Rock Community Church, as evidenced by a barely legible handwritten note from Cassell placed in each trunk. But since the chests and their contents were now evidence in an open case, getting an appraisal done had proven rather complicated. To that end, Chief Marsh had emailed half a dozen experts in antique currency, only one of whom had offered to drive up from Detroit and have a look at the money in the evidence room of the Lake County Sheriff's Office. It had been Trent's idea to also invite an antique furniture appraiser from Traverse City to have a look at the desk down here in its not-so-natural habitat. Trent's father entered the bedroom, a man and a woman trailing behind. "'Kids, this is Phil Kay and Aaron Baldwin,' he said. Then pointing first at Kay, then at Baldwin, he added, Money, furniture. And speaking of which, here's the desk. He gestured into the mouth of the tunnel. The appraiser gawked for a moment before entering the chamber and examining the antique, opening the roll top and each of the drawers. Have you already appraised the banknotes? Judith asked Mr. Kay. Yes, he answered. And I'm afraid the water damage has rendered them quite worthless. It's a shame, too. The lot of them would have gathered quite a sum in mint condition. 
Thousands. Oh, Trent said. His disappointment was deep, but not unexpected. It was surely a long shot that anything good would come out of the whole mess that had embroiled their town. Still, he had been unwilling to let go of hope altogether. Mr. K smiled sympathetically. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Quite a story, though. I actually tagged along here because I was curious about this tunnel and the old map there. What a fascinating find. Ms. Baldwin turned her attention from the desk to those gathered around it. I'm sorry, but I've got more bad news. There's nothing remarkable here, except for the provenance. I'd recommend keeping it. Maybe put it on display in your church. It's worth far more as a conversation piece than as a piece of furniture. You might get 1200 for it if you sell it on consignment, probably less. Adam nodded. Well, I appreciate your time and expertise, both of you. But wait, Judith said. What was wrong with the first two bills? They weren't damaged. Mr. K furrowed his brow. First two, I'm not sure what you mean. Oh my gosh, Trent said. I, I totally forgot! He rushed over to his bed, unzipped his pillow, and withdrew the two $50 bills, still in their acid-free sleeve. Scrambling back into the tunnel, he handed them to Mr. K. The appraiser carefully slid the banknotes out and set them on the desk, turning the first one over twice. Hmm, very good shape, he said. At auction, you could probably get four or five hundred for it. He then turned his attention to the other note and froze, mouth agape. Well, this is something else, he finally managed. Serial number 1000. That's a collector's dream. These 1882 series $50 brownbacks are very scarce, and I've, I've never seen one issued by this bank. Never even heard of one. Factor in that serial number, and you'll get multiple collectors fighting over this item at auction. Bet on it. More than $500, you think? Trenton said. I wouldn't be surprised if it brought more than 50000 Trent caught his dad's eye. More than enough to re-roof the church, he said. The next pastor can come in without all that doom and gloom hanging over their head. Adam smiled. It was the kind of easy smile Trent had been seeing more and more this past week and a half. Old dad, who, ironically, looked quite a bit younger. It was as if the stress and demands of Stephen Branding's magnum opus had been packed up in the boxes all around them. Yes, father and son had begun repacking their things just two weeks after finally getting settled into the parsonage. There was no hurry, but eventually the old house would be home to someone else. Ideally, someone whose call to ministry had come from the spirit within, not guilt from without. In his newly recovered spare time, Trent's dad, no longer a graduate student or a cleric, was interviewing officers to replace the three now awaiting trial. He'd also taken over the youth leadership boot camp program up at Picture Falls, enjoying the camaraderie and one-on-one -on -one mentoring of the position far more than he'd ever enjoyed preaching. Judith was signed up now, too, taking Zoe's place, and the group had already met twice with big plans for mission trips and discipleship activities well into the school year. A sense of peace enveloped the secret chamber. In that moment, the two strangers seemed to fade away, and the three of them, Adam, Judith, and Trent, huddled together, a family of sorts. They'd been through so much together, and they'd learned even more. Life was not about seeking out insanity to prove yourself worthy of God's love. It was about a willingness to be faithful through the dull days and the wild ones alike, to live a quiet life as far as they were able, all the while ready to endure whatever may come for the sake of the name. And whatever came their way, one thing was sure. It wasn't on them to be the heroes of this story. 
that role was already filled. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel. Copyright 2017, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, like God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Good.